This episode is sponsored by Audible, which has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free 30-day trial at www.audible.com slash serial spoiler. We're also sponsored by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code serial spoiler. Hello and welcome to Slate's Serial Spoiler Special. I'm Slate's senior editor, Gabriel Roth. Katie Waldman was supposed to be with us today, but she's experiencing Christmas Eve travel nightmares, and so she was unable to to make it for this week's podcast. Uh, Fortunately, I have two guests ably filling in. Jacob Brogan, who writes for Slate about technology and culture. Hi, Jacob. Hi, Gabe. And June Thomas, the editor of Slate's LGBTQ blog, Outward. Thanks for being with us, June. Hey, Gabe, what's up? What's up, indeed. Uh, So every week, this is the podcast where uh, we discuss season two of the uber-popular podcast Serial, going deeper into the show's themes, exploring its characters and situations, and looking at the ways in which the podcast reverberates in the world. Uh, Jacob, let's start with the bigger picture. What are you thinking of this second season of Serial so far? What this season has really drawn out for me is to some extent that Serial as a whole might be called uncertainty. Uh, We're... We're spending so much time questioning the veracity of of everyone's stories. And we got a lot in this episode about uh, these fragments uh, of intelligence that might tell us something, might tell us nothing, might lead somewhere dangerous, uh, might lead to something true. And and it, it seems like that's really uh, been the kind of master trope of both seasons of Serial, is that it's these little details uh, and our interrogation of them that maybe matter most. And June, how is season two matching up for you? quite as engaged with it as I was with season one. Uh, I think that anticlimactic response was inevitable after the, the giant that it was last year. But I guess I'm not really quite sure even what Serial is, is trying to do. I, I'm not sure what it's trying to evoke in me. Um, it seemed that the first season was all about unraveling a true crime, maybe even, as unlikely as it seemed, finding a true killer or perhaps even you know, showing that uh, Adnan's imprisonment was unjust. This time around, I still don't quite have a handle on what it's hoping to reveal. Uh, so far, at least, what I've mostly gleaned is is the unknowability of the truth and, and the unreliability of, of just about every narrator. Yeah. It seems like uh, the inevitability of disappointment was... Uh, actually a theme in this episode to some extent, where we get these two escapes. But we're told from the very beginning, and we know from the very beginning, that they're going to be failed escapes, that they're going to, uh, that he's going to be recaptured, and that things are going to go very badly for him afterward, as in fact they do. In most serial narratives, an escape would be a thrilling moment. But here, uh, there's something fatalistic about the very act of of, of seeing Bergdahl trying to escape, uh, because we know how it's going to end before it even begins. Yeah, I, I feel like that's one of the consequences of the producer's decision to to pick a story from the news, a story that's been reported on a lot, where where you go in knowing at least that he will remain in Taliban captivity for, for a long time beyond that first year. Uh, it deprives them to a certain extent of some of the drama of what, as you say, should be an inherently really dramatic moment. Um, June, how did you feel when you were listening to the story, especially of that second escape where where Bo Bergdahl spent eight or nine days wandering around uh, rural Pakistan trying not to be discovered? Like a lot of serial in both seasons, there's a sort of a poetry to it. Um, 
you know, it's it's striking. We, we've seen all through that Koenig is, is capable of really memorable and, and really beautiful images studded in, in sort of logistical details. And it's clear that from his conversations with Mark Bowl, that Bo Bergdahl has a similar eye or ear for, for making what might be potentially a dull story. I, I tried to struggle somewhere where I didn't know and I had to hide. I mean, that was essentially what it was, but both of them managed to make it uh, really quite compelling and and kind of pretty to listen to. You know, those girls uh, gathering flowers, perhaps, uh, who, who were oblivious to his presence or his scattering uh, pine needles on his blanket. Mm. Very beautiful images that actually I imagine will kind of stay with me, even though we've also earlier been told that he's this stinky, uh, you know, suffering creature. So it's it's an odd beauty. And this was a very scatological episode, too. Yes, the scatological themes, which, which came up uh, last week in the episode of The Ship Pants, um, <laughs> this week uh, were, were really in, in full effect. And in, that, in those moments at the end when uh, the, the most telling detail of all was, was the fact that Bergdahl's shit was pale green or something like that because he'd been living on grass and there wasn't even enough grass out there. Um, it does feel like the way to tell a story from the news and to make it uh, compelling and vivid is to focus on the material in that way, to focus on the human body, on what do you eat and what do you shit, trying to find water, but there's no water, or when you find the water, then the, the water has been fouled as well. And the way in which your existence in that kind of situation would be reduced to just the smallest details of your bodily existence, the crudest details of your bodily existence. I'd, I'd even add to that maybe that uh, the scatological emphasis of this episode captures what this season is really doing best and what I wish that it were doing more of, which is really telling us something about what it's like to be under these conditions uh, and to try to survive them. Making it about this mystery is is actually less interesting to me than hearing what it's like to to try to endure uh, these conditions. Yeah, to go back to the the, the Zoom framework that Sarah Koenig uh, sort of prompted us to, to use in the first episode, where in theory we're going to be pulling back and looking at a wider and wider picture every time. Uh, in this case, it seems like we zoomed back in again. Last week there was this huge manhunt um, occupying the attention of large parts of the U.S. Army presence in Afghanistan. Uh, and this time we're back to this one guy in a room or trying to get out of the room. Um, you couldn't zoom in too much closer than that. The part that will stick with me, I think, is is this bit where he, you know, sneaks bits of food out to this dog and this mean dog and the dog starts sleeping in, in his room. And it's a detail that goes nowhere. I mean, it, it leads to no interesting narrative development, but it's this moment, however many days or weeks or months uh, of these five years of confinement that resonates and lingers. And it, it's not beautiful in the way that some of the others that, that you two were alluding to are, uh, but it is... Um, charming and haunting at one and the same time. 
there's a screenwriting trope. Uh, there's a book about screenwriting named after the trope called Save the Cat, in which the, the sort of obvious mechanical way that you make your, your protagonist sympathetic is somewhere in the middle of the first act. You have them save an animal in jeopardy, <laughs> and then the audience is rooting for, for that guy. Um, and slipping scraps of food to a vicious dog owned by the Taliban uh, until the point where that dog becomes essentially your pet. Uh, if a screenwriter were to try to write the story of Bo Bergdahl and to make him a sympathetic character, it would be hard to come up with a more on-the-nose way of doing it than that. It's true. It's funny that you mentioned screenwriting, uh, Gabe, because throughout, um, both explicitly and implicitly, there, were, there was a lot of talk and, of, in my mind, a lot of thought about kind of the construction of narrative. We had this, this segment where the Taliban were essentially using him uh, in propaganda movies. I've seen all these TV shows or movies where someone is captured and maybe turns or where somebody is being set up uh, as a, somebody who's a sympathizer that I'm kind of questioning and thinking, oh, that was just like in Homeland or, oh, that's just like... And so I can't stop myself, even though I, I don't want to treat this, you know, real-life tragedy because whatever is true... There's clearly a huge human tragedy here. I don't want to confuse that with mere, you know, television entertainment, but I can't help myself. There's a counterpoint to our own inclination to read or to look at Bergdahl's experiences uh, in terms of their resonances with fictional stories. And that's Bergdahl's own reliance uh, on fictional metaphors uh, and fictional references. And, you know, we know from the first episode this that there's this sort of Jason Bourne comparison. And then there are often these, these references to uh, kung fu movies. I think it's in the second episode that he says something about no matter how many kung fu movies you watch, or and then he kind of adds, or how many martial arts classes you take. Uh, that you're not going to be able to fight these guys off. But here, the one that I, that really stuck with me, the fictional reference, was uh, when he falls off this cliff during his second escape, he says, good grief, uh, as if Charlie Brown is escaping from the Taliban here. And then when he when he lands, he, he, he says, and, and Koenig repeats, that he said, oof, as if he were a cartoon character. And it, it started to strike me here, thinking about those moments, that even as we're expected to, or, or even as we find ourselves listening to his story as if it might be fiction, that he was using, and maybe still is using, these fictional references to some extent uh, as a survival strategy. It's a way for him to process experiences that would otherwise be unfathomably awful. There's another narrative that, for me, sort of haunts this season of Serial, and, and that's uh, the film Zero Dark Thirty, which Mark Bull produced and co-wrote. Uh, that's not ostensibly a fictional narrative. That's the, the film that, that detailed the capture and killing of Osama bin Laden. But although it wasn't a fictional narrative, it was a story that had been carefully organized and, and was carefully presented a, a, in a way that was narrative rather than journalistic. It was a movie. One of the controversies around that film was to do with the portrayal of torture by the CIA and, and its role in the capture of Osama bin Laden. There were complaints that the film made that achievement seem dependent on torture in a way that, in, in fact, it wasn't. And so hearing this story with Mark Ball's involvement about an American being tortured by the Taliban, where there's absolutely no point to this torture. Bergdahl has no useful information for, for his captors, and the captors don't even have good questions for him. They only have, they have a few reasonable questions, and then they have a bunch of obviously ridiculous questions about whether all American women are prostitutes and whether President Obama is homosexual. 
it, it's troubling to hear this other version of the torture story where an American in captivity is tortured and it's obviously both a war crime and completely pointless. Uh, whereas in this other story, torture has been seen maybe as a way to get things done, although it may not be pretty. You know, there was a big moment in this episode that I'm sure we all kind of glommed onto, which is where Koenig says, after hearing the story of the escape from the, you know, the, the, the fortress, uh, she says something like, to me, more than anything, this moment in the mountain fortress puts all the talk about Bo being a sympathizer to rest. Bo did not sympathize with the Taliban. He loathed the Taliban. Now, I don't want to challenge that, but partly as a journalist, partly as a human, partly as a listener who's being presented with this narrative, I feel that it's my role to question it. And I sort of wish that if she's going to say, okay, because he was tortured after the first escape attempt, therefore we would know, and I'm going to make this very clear, decisive conclusion from that evidence, that there was more evidence. I want to hear, for example, and this is going to sound like I'm a terrible person and very bloodthirsty, but like, I want to hear about the evidence. There would be, you know, the body would hold the memory of that. There would be scars. There would be broken bones. I want evidence of that torture. Again, awful. Like, you know, as I'm saying that, I feel terrible. But nevertheless, I feel that the show is kind of teaching me to want that and to question Kamey's conclusion there. What's difficult, though, is that so often when we get something here that resembles or even approaches confirmation, it's always resembling it or confirming it at a distance. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I would incline to return again here to the, that dog that he claims to be befriended, which seems like such a cinematic trope that, that there's an inclination perhaps to, to distrust it almost. And the, the confirmation we have is that certain intelligence sources, if I'm remembering right, you know, said that he had a German shepherd puppy with him or something like this, which is quite different from the story that he tells about befriending a savage guard dog. Koenig suggests that, that there's something like confirmation here, or at least some kind of corroboration, but every confirmation that we seem to get, and, and this is something that we saw a lot in season one as well, every confirmation that we seem to get is anything but. Before we move on, a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash serial spoiler and browse the over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash serial spoiler. That's audible.com slash serial spoiler and get started today. Audible content includes more than 180,000 audio programs from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. If you're interested in more true stories from Afghanistan, you might consider I Am Malala, the girl who stood up for education and was shot by the Taliban. The true story of Nobel Peace Prize winner Malala Yousafzai, who refused to be silenced and fought for her right to an education, nearly paying the ultimate price. Start your free trial today by going to audible.com slash serial spoiler. Now, do we think the moment when Sarah Koenig says, uh, you know, this is where I, this is where the question of Bo's sympathy and loyalty was resolved for me, is that the end of Serial's concern with that? Will, will this no longer be a question going forward? Are we going to take Bergdahl's story at face value from here on? So do we expect there to, to be uh, season-long questions in Serial? Is that what the first season set us up for? Uh, and And if so... Uh, should we be expecting something else 
from this show? Yeah, is this, are, are we getting confused by Homeland in a way? The first season of Homeland <laughs> turned on an American prisoner of war who had returned and the question as to where his, his loyalty was when he had come back. Maybe that's also an overarching question for season two of Serial, but, but at this point it seems as though it isn't. Yeah, I mean, certainly, um, you know, as a journalist, I, I was the foreign editor at Slate for, for some years. And typically, it was always my view that we're never going to find definitive truth, but that one thing that would be a great service would be to present as many views as possible. So presenting different perspectives from a journalistic point of view feels like the right thing to do. However, as a listener to Serial, as a consumer of Serial, I guess I have to admit that I am hoping for some kind of resolution, even though uh, rationally, how could that be possible? The, the, his case is still proceeding. I know it's not possible, but I have to admit I'm craving it. From season one, it seems as though Serial isn't always keen on delivering a resolution, or maybe from season one they would have liked to deliver a resolution, but if they can't, that's, they're not going to let that stop them. Uh, maybe we'll wind up in the same situation here. This is part of what I had in mind when I suggested earlier that that the series as a whole, the show as a whole, might be called Uncertainty rather than Serial. I mean, seriality suggests a kind of ongoing uh, openness to revision, interrogation. But that's not really what we, we usually get here. We don't get the show questioning itself or, or thinking about its own methods. Instead, we just get more and more questions piling on top of themselves. But I will say, for whatever it's worth, that I kind of do hope that we stop questioning or that the show stops questioning at least uh, Bergdahl's loyalty at this point. You know, what we saw in that scene or that sequence about him being questioned by the Taliban is that he couldn't win. No matter how he answered their questions or what approach he took, uh, they just distrusted him more. At least that's what we get from from the description of it uh, in this episode. And when we're asked to kind of question him, no matter what he says, however indirectly, we're, we're sort of recreating some of that particular kind of uh, emotional torment that that he went through. And even if that is a good journalistic impulse, it's not really uh, empathic in a way that Bergdahl, of all people, probably needs. I think that's a really good point. And, and you've made me question right now whether this is even a journalistic uh, proceeding. I mean, clearly it is on a certain level. There is this longing for truth, this digging for truth. But I'm always struck every single week so far that the, about the decision to call Bergdahl Bo, which, mm -hmm. you know, it keeps pulling me out of, of something because it seems a contradiction of, of journalistic policy. You know, you refer to people by their last name on second usage. That's what you do. And, and by choosing to call him Bo, you sort of feeling like you're, it's a friend. It's, it's a more relaxed way of, of, speaking, of speaking about him, of referring to him. But perhaps that's intentional. It's not just uh, a piece of, of journalistic digression. I wonder if we're seeing two tendencies of serial coming into conflict here. If, if there's a journalistic tendency and a narrative tendency, we, we, we might say there's the tendency towards radical uncertainty, which is a journalistic tendency, and a tendency towards uh, radical empathy, as Katie put it, which, which is a narrative tendency. Mm. For instance, I think in this episode, part of what the point of this episode is just to present us with a portrait of a man in very extreme and desperate circumstances. And that that's a story that should be compelling and that should engage our sympathy and and that that we should be sort of hooked on in a storytelling way. And yet there's also this investigative, this journalistic um, 
impulse within the show and, and framework to how the story is told and that, that makes us suspicious when they call the guy by his first name and that makes us wonder if we can really take his testimony at face value. And in the first season, those two things seemed to be aligned. We were going to try to use journalistic techniques to uncover this story, to scrape away all of the uncertainty and, and, and hopefully arrive at the actual story. And in the end, we weren't able to do that, but that was the promise. And I wonder if in the second season, we're seeing those two tendencies come into conflict a bit. This was uh, one of the first episodes where we really heard Mark Bull talking about his own thoughts and feelings uh, about Bergdahl. What do we think of his uh, appearance as a character here? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to hear him be a little more confrontational, I felt, this week. Um, we, you can never really quite tell. Again, I realize I'm projecting this, but I've sometimes thought, oh, Bull at that point is trying to, you know, gain Bergdahl's confidence so he'll share more. Um, you never really know if he's trying to get him to, to you know, expand what he said, if he's, if he's trying to, you know, just being next-level interrogatory and, you know, getting him to share more than he intends to, or if he really is working out his attempts to understand the contrast between the way that Bull talks and the way that Koenig talks is quite striking because Bull's voice and his just his way of speaking is more normal. He's having a conversation with this guy, uh, whereas Koenig is in radio mode and it's kind of a fake real reality, you know, that fake only in the sense that we know that she's probably taped this a thousand times to get the intonation just right. And so that it's a little bit fake, but it's a fake that we appreciate that we almost require that we we enjoy there is a tension between those two styles of of self-presentation i do think it's interesting that bull is allowing these tapes to be aired and to be aired in this very high profile way when what he's doing is this kind of um roundabout backgrounds journalistic interviewing he was a journalist before he was involved in making films uh and and i think most journalists when they're talking to a source in an exploratory way uh, they're not self-conscious about the way they talk. They wind up trying things out. They provoke the source a little bit. You, you, you push them in a different way. You, you try different roles to see what works in terms of getting information out of people. Uh, and I think most journalists would be loath to have that, those conversations broadcast because they, they don't necessarily stand by everything they're saying in, in what are essentially private conversations that involve a fair amount of role-playing. Uh, given all of that... Are we inclined to trust him and the things that he says? Sarah Koenig seems to kind of take him at face value for the most part. Uh, but but here we are talking about whether or not we believe uh, Bergdahl. Um, I wonder if we are, are or should be believing Bull uh, when he expresses uh, empathy at certain moments or, or when he describes uh, or talks to uh, Bergdahl about his experiences. Now I'm very curious if there were restrictions uh, offered by Bull or placed by Bull if he had a right to saying, oh, don't use that one, or maybe just use Bergdahl in this. That's right. I think there's a lot about, you know, Koenig described uh, Mark Boll and, and his company as our partners for this season. Uh, and, and I think there's a lot about that relationship that, that there's a lot of questions raised by that relationship. And th that's certainly one of them is what kind of control did he have over what parts of the tapes were used and, and how they were used. The question of how much we're supposed to trust Boll in hearing these tapes um, reminds me of Joan Didion's famous remark about how a, a writer is always selling somebody out. Uh, 
And I wonder if part of what we're hearing on these tapes is is Mark Bull in the process of selling Bo Bergdahl out. Um, we may find out by the end of this season of Serial, or we may not find out until his movie comes out at some point in the next couple of years. Okay, before we go on, here's a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Harry's. Harry sent me a shaving set. It came with a copper-plated razor handle, a couple of five-blade razor cartridges, uh, great-smelling shaving cream, and you can tell with this razor that it's really well built. The weight is good in your hand. It's been well made by somebody who cared about making a quality razor. I've been using mass-produced razors my entire life because I'm not the kind of person who owns a fancy, expensive razor. Harry's razors are affordable, but they're a lot better than the ones you're going to get at the, your local drugstore. Uh, you should get one for yourself if you're a shaver. If you're not a shaver, you should get one as a gift for the shaver in your life. Check out harrys.com. Get a few gifts. Treat yourself. Go there right now. As a special offer for for listeners of this podcast, Harry's will give you $5 off your first order with code SERIALSPOILER. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. Enter code SERIALSPOILER. That's almost all we have time for this week. Um, I'll just, before we go, I will ask each of you guys what you're hoping to see from the rest of season two of Serial. You know, I have to say, I really don't have a clear picture of what I want to hear. It's not like season one was like, I need to hear from Jay. You know, there's no equivalent of that. I am hoping to hear a lot of different perspectives, um, but I don't know that I'm really going to trust those perspectives, so maybe I'm being a giant hypocrite um, or, or some other flaw that is being revealed in my desires for the show, but um, there's, no clear, there's no clear absent voice that, uh, that I want to hear from right now. For me, uh, I, I also don't have an absent voice, uh, as you say, that, that I'd like to hear from. Um, but I think that I would like to hear the show reflecting on its own methodology in some of the ways that we've been discussing a little more. I, I suspect I will be disappointed in that regard, um, but, but I would love to hear them trying to think about what they're doing uh, and how they're doing it a bit more. Before we go, we wanted to share some of the responses to episode two that we received from our listeners. First, an email from Paul, who writes, Dear Slate Serial Spoiler Team, Love your work, but I was surprised that Sarah Koenig's inability to get a joke was not touched upon, even if only briefly. In episode one, you discussed Bergdahl's sense of humor, or lack of evidence for, yet when Sarah makes a big deal about not getting a joke, it slides. And we will start joking with the Irfan that let's even this guy know you are Pakistani. So, <laughs> yeah... I'm laughing here as if I get the joke. I don't. Does Sarah even have the ability to assess if Bo is a funny guy? The joke was global. In New Zealand, we would probably say, even this guy can tell you are from Australia. Australians would say the same about NZ. I believe Canadians think about Newfoundland in the same way. Racist? Maybe. But timeless and global. I think Serial needs a comedy consultant. Stat. Warm regards. Paul. Thanks, Paul. Um, I agree that the, that moment from the previous episode fits into a uh, framework of regional humor that, that is probably familiar to most of us. It probably works in much the same way as Polish jokes used to in the United States back when that was a thing. Uh, on the other hand, the delivery of that particular joke did seem a, a, a little bit hard to, to grasp for me. I, I will admit that I, I didn't find myself uh, chuckling out loud uh, at the joke about even he can tell that you're Pakistani. To me, one reason I actually liked uh, that 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 moment uh, with the the joke that she misses is her honesty about it, about not not getting it. And it was one of those few moments where I really 
did have the show doing what I'm always looking for it to do, which is reflecting on on the way that it works. Uh, At the same time, in this third episode, I did learn something interesting about humor, which is that uh, even members of the Taliban find beards without mustaches funny. <laughs> and fair enough, because they are hilarious. Next, a voice memo from Simon. Hi, guys. Love the podcast. I think you give real color to um, Serial, and your guests are really strong. Um, I just had a question about the framing um, of Serial. In the first series, we had the big question, which was, how does the American justice system work? And But that was all centered or, or behind the smaller and more personal question of, is Adnan guilty or not? And I think it's very admirable of Serial to talk about the military and it's using its weight and influence to question something that people don't really talk about otherwise. But I'm struggling to find what the personal question is. And that moment that we had in the finale of season one where Sarah was saying, you know, I just want to know what you did on January 13th. And Adnan saying, you know, do you have a finale? And it was that personal element that really sucked us in. And I don't think they've really framed that yet in season two. Hopefully they will in episode three. But I was wondering if you guys agree. And if not, what do you think is the personal question that we have to wrestle with in season two? Thanks, Simon. It may be that the second season of Serial doesn't turn on a personal relationship between a journalist and a subject in the way that, that season one did. Um, or it may be that the conversations between Mark Boll and Bo Bergdahl come to take the place of those conversations between Sarah Koenig and Adnan Said. Uh, it remains to be seen. It may be that, as I said before, we're, this show wants us to sympathize with Bo and this difficult situation that he finds himself in. It does seem as though none of these questions have yet made a connection with listeners in the way that the the Koenig-Saeed relationship did uh, in that first season. So in a way, the jury is still out. Thanks to all of you who contacted us. If you'd like to send us an email or a voice memo, you can reach us at serialspoilerspecial at gmail.com. That's it for this episode. We'll be back in January following the release of Serial's fourth episode of season two. And in the meantime, we'd love to hear your thoughts and questions about the show. Email us at serialspoilerspecial at gmail.com or record a voice memo on your phone and send it to that address. The Slate Serial Spoiler Special is produced by Sam Dingman. Special thanks to Dan Bloom for helping out with this week's show. We're a production of Slate's Panoply Network. Laura Mayer is our managing producer and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Find us on iTunes and find more great Panoply shows at itunes.com panoply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.